Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Law. I'm Catherine Hermes, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Cornelia Hughes-Dayton, an associate professor at the University of Connecticut in the History Department about her new book, Robert Love's Warnings, Searching for Strangers in Colonial Boston. Professor Dayton wrote this book with Sharon V. Salinger, who is the Dean of the Division of Undergraduate Education and a Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine. Um, Professor Dayton, welcome to New Books in Law. Thank you, Professor Hermes. So, To get started, um, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about how you came to work with Professor Salinger on this book. Right. Uh, Historians don't collaborate a lot, not as often as scientists, so that's that's part of the story here. Uh, The project originated when my co-author Sharon Salinger was researching uh, at the Massachusetts Historical Society for her book that has now come off, out on taverns and drinking. And she, as she puts it, she called for every diary, 18th century diary they had, hoping that she would find men ta- telling tales about their going to taverns and what happened in taverns. So she called for a manuscript book called Robert Love's Diary, 1765-66, but she found that it really wasn't a diary. Instead, it was a journal or a logbook uh, and she, listing uh, people, and she realized quickly that it was about strangers who were warned in Boston, uh, and that what the diarist was doing or the journalist was doing was, was listing information about these people who he warned. Uh, and that's really where our project began, because Sharon was a PhD student of Gary Nash's, the famous colonial historian, and he had used warning in Boston uh, as a kind of index of, of poverty in this period, the 1760s. She realized that what she was looking at at the MHS uh, was a record of warning that was far more detailed than historians like Nash had used, so that it was a valuable document 
And mm-hmm. from there, she described it to me, and we agreed to collaborate. And we decided that uh, if we traced some of the people who were warned in for the rest of their lives or where they came from, their parents, et cetera, we would know a lot more about this strange practice of warning. The, this was um, only the second book that I've ever read about the practice of warning. I think the first one was by uh, Ruth Wallace Herndon about mm-hmm. Providence. And um, could you describe the practice a little bit? Because I'll bet a lot of our listeners aren't even sure what it is, or they may have heard about Absolutely. warning out, but may not know exactly what it entailed. Right, exactly. It uh, First of all, people tend to associate it with New England, uh, a colonial New England practice. Uh, and uh, the the only two books uh, that have been written about it are the one you mentioned by the wonderful social historian Ruth Herndon, which is about Rhode Island's practice of warning, but that was quite different from the rest of New England. So I'm going to be describing how warning worked in Massachusetts, uh, and Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Vermont all copied Massachusetts. Um, the other, the earlier book, uh, which we might call a little classic that was written about warning in New England was by Josiah Henry Benton, and it's from 1911. So we think of our book and Ruth as kind of updating um, that first study by Benton. So warning uh, is and was a legal gesture that informed a newcomer to a town uh, that if he or she stayed in the town, settled there and ever needed poor relief, what we would call welfare, the town would not pay for it. Um, This was based on the English poor laws that gave every British subject a lifelong entitlement to receive relief if they ever needed it, uh, but in, in one particular place, either the town they were born or the town they had what was called settlement. Uh, So Boston was protecting itself from rising poor relief costs uh, by finding, identifying and and what we call warning strangers. And when people were uh, warned out, did they have to leave? Well, that's the mystery of it, uh, or or the puzzle, I guess I'd say, in that that when a a person was warned, uh, they were verbally told, you must depart the town of Boston in 14 days. So it certainly sounds that way, but it's what I think of as a legal fiction. Everyone knew that you didn't have to leave town, um, that you could stay around, you could stay the rest of your life, you could marry, you could buy a house, you could vote if you qualified to vote, etc., but you just could not receive poor relief paid for by the town. So I think of it as a legal fiction. Um, and we know that how it operated was in, in a way like a registration. Uh, what, it, what it created in Boston was lists of people who had been warned that were alphabetized by the town clerk. And then Boston had what we would consider a public hospital with an almshouse that took in a lot of people who needed medical care or food or shelter. When people were taken into the almshouse, in essence, the people who ran it, the managers, would check these lists. And if it were me, uh, let's say they were looking up, they would find me on the list and say, she is not from Massachusetts, she's from Connecticut. Um, And that means that we're going to bill the province treasurer for whatever cost she um, incurs in the almshouse. So the other piece of the puzzle that we found out in doing our research is there were really two poor accounts in Massachusetts. One was paid for by each town, and one was paid for by the province or the central government. Um, And so historians have 
I think, tended to misinterpret warning as uh, a rejection, uh, a, a sort of exclusionary tactic that that was harsh and said, you're out in the cold if you ever need help. But in reality, warning was like a mechanism that told uh, officials who would pay. Uh, so there are lots and lots of people in Boston and Massachusetts who don't have a legal settlement um, in the colony, but who receive relief either as a, in the almshouse or from a physician or, or in another way. And the province pays for that. It's, it's really fascinating how you describe in the book the perambulations of Robert Love. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your method of kind of retracing his steps um, helped you discern what was really going on. Like um, it was almost mm-hmm. like uh, following something on Google Maps or GIS. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we don't normally think of that as being part of legal history per se. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, uh, so I think it's a blend of sort of law in operation and and society, right? Uh, uh, he's the guy that we studied who kept these amazing notes. It turns out uh, was just a petty, obscure Bostonian, a petty official appointed by the selectmen. Uh, and what we figure he did is that uh, he was also a trader and ribbons and horsehairs, and and he sold small amounts of liquor out of his house. So he had other ways of earning a living, but uh, and he got a salary for warning people. But he warned people by, by walking the town, and Boston was a very walkable town at that time, uh, not huge. Uh, and his, his law books tell us uh, the days that he warned people, so we can determine what, what is his pattern. He warns one or two people most days. Um, we can infer where he might have met them because he tended to go to the places they were lodging. Uh, we deduce, uh, he always wrote down when he knew it, where someone was lodging. Um, he sometimes will write that he, he met someone in the street, that he met them the day they were arriving in Boston. For 14% of the 4,000 people he warned, he finds them on the day they arrive. So, so we imagine them moving across town and, um, and he, uh, interviews them. Um, so that's, I think one of our points is that the way in which a city like Boston or Ipswich in in England and many cities of this size were governed is by, there are a lot of these petty officials who, who have walking rounds, the overseers of the poor walk their ward or district that they're assigned, the night constables walk a certain round, and almost all of them are required to submit written reports. So some of the system in Boston, we argue, rests on a fairly high literacy rate among men. These aren't men with college educations, or they're not privileged, but but they're able to 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 take notes and write notes, and those survive in the Boston town records in the archives. And who are the types of people that he warned? Right. So this is one of the things that, that our research uh, really try, tried to get at. Uh, in, in the past, 
when historians were really looking at warning in Boston uh, in this period and just seeing you know a couple of hundred people warned a year and just seeing the names of the of the if it's a family the the, the name of the head of household um, but then they assumed that a lot of these people were were impoverished and sort of like tramps and forced to to walk the roads and go from town to town looking for jobs it's a after the Seven Years' War, it's an economic depression. So again, those historians, those wonderful social historians writing in the 70s and 80s, assumed that these uh, people were quite poor and impoverished. And we wanted to test that with our research. And what was wonderful about Robert Love's notes is that instead of just giving the name of the head of household, he gave the wife's name and the children's name and, and more details so that we did have a good chance of tracking a lot of these people, especially who came in from another Massachusetts town, back to where they came from, where, where were they born. And we looked up, uh, the, the, what we found is that there are a lot of young people coming into Boston and being warned, and they're between the ages of 15 and 24, they haven't married yet, uh, and we've deduced that they are coming in for short work stints, uh, a couple of months, a couple of years sometimes, training, um, sort of informal apprenticeships, domestic service, uh, and then they go back, we find them, to their natal town and get married and then often move on from there. So uh, so they're not, uh, not all of them are settling permanently in Boston. They're kind of providing a much needed labor force uh, for any city of this size. Uh, and I guess the point I'm making here is that they... They come from middling yeoman families, so they're not um, they're not on the move out out of desperation. What yeah, love notes? Yeah, go ahead. Kat. No, I, it mm-hmm. just um, it struck me that many of them were not really indigent. Um, when you read right. Ruth Herndon's book, she writes specifically mm-hmm. about people who were uh, kind of on mm-hmm. the margins of society, and you certainly address some of those mm-hmm. uh, cases in your book. Mm-hmm. But there, there seem to be far more uh, people who are middling, widows, right. um, and and people who have not, um, people who are not necessarily going going to wind up on poor relief. That's right. That's right. And I think the difference is that in Rhode Island, as I remember, people were warned, and at the end of say five years of staying in town, and as a precursor to to having them leave town. Whereas in Massachusetts, you're more and more at the beginning of your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you, uh, so that I think that captures a, a broader range of social and economic circumstances. Do you find that the people who were warned surface in other legal records? Are these, are these well, folks who, you know, come up in criminal records and or uh, probate records? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly you know, we can trace them, as, you know, often their parents the, of these young people in their probate records. That's sort of where we tell how, how wealthy, how, man, how many acres did, a, did a, a, a man in a small Massachusetts town have. Uh, we did cross-reference all these names with the criminal records, uh, the general sessions of the peace court records for Boston for the same years, the 10 years before, 1776. And we found some overlap. You know, there, there's the occasional uh, man like George O'Brien, I think, who lodges with a woman somewhere in Boston, and a few months later he's 
he's arrested in Salem for stealing a horse in Boston and taking it to Salem, and he's tried for that. So we find some overlap, um, not not a huge amount again. So although I think there's uh, uh, what Dan Cohen has called a sort of subculture of um, thieves and counterfeiters um, circulating in New England, there's some of those in the warrant, but it's a very small percentage. Now, aside from kind of casting this as a legal history, you also cast it as a history of the Atlantic world. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. How does this help us understand the Atlantic world? Yes. Uh, On the one hand, uh, historians have known that Boston was not a a magnet for uh, people coming from overseas at this time. It's only 5% of the 4,000 people warned in who we study uh, who are from uh, overseas, from Europe, from um, Ireland, England, directly from Ireland, England, Scotland, uh, one or two from the continent. Uh, most the, the, There's a lot of uh, migration at this time overseas, but it's to New York and Philadelphia principally. So, so Boston, uh, the, these records confirm that Boston was not the top choice of people coming from Europe. On the other hand, uh, Robert Love often will say about someone who's, come from New York City to Boston, uh, that he's a Dutchman, meaning he's of German origin, or he, he or she is French. So we see quite a lot of, of um, non-Britons uh, or people who uh, in, or in heritage were not British uh, circulating through Boston. It's just that they've come there not directly from overseas, but because they are uh, moving around um, the British Atlantic coast. Do you think that um, do you think that migration um, is captured in the warnings? In other words, does it correspond pretty much to what people know about migration? Are the are the well, same, it, are is it mm-hmm. is it the same percentage who are being warned who come from other places that are coming into Boston? That kind of thing. Um, I, I think this might not directly answer the question, but what, the strong argument we make in the book is that, that most of these people are sojourners in Boston, uh, meaning that they spend a short amount of time there, but they don't settle for the rest of their lives. So this is really a semantic issue, but we kind of avoid the word migrant mm-hmm. uh, because it has, I think it tends to suggest permanent moves or, or you know, semi-permanent moves. And our argument is that most of the traffic in and out of Boston that is being captured in these funny warning records is uh, people who sometimes they'll tell Mr. Love that they intend to go out of town in a few days or, uh, or, we've, or we can trace them, as I said before, uh, uh, a few years later in, in another town. So, um, so that's why we like uh, Alan Harris has written about Scottish um, people moving from Scotland to the colonies and back. He calls them sojourners, and and we call most of these people sojourners too. Another group that arises in your book pretty frequently are the soldiers, um, mm-hmm. and I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about what you found out about soldiers and um, the kind of population that they represented and how they interacted with Robert Love. 
Right. So uh, it just happens that uh, Robert Love was named to warn, appointed to warn uh, strangers in 1765, and he did it for the next nine and a third years until his death. Uh, and that's really just it overlaps with this decade that we now call pre-revolutionary because we know the revolution happened at the end of it. Um, and and it's a time of a lot of street theater and protests against the Stamp Act, etc. Uh, and so his warnings do overlap with some of the imperial crises and political uh, uh, dramatic events. And, and, and as you, as, as your question points to, um, some of those events involved the occupation of Boston by regiments of British troops in 1768 for two years that led to the what we call the Boston Massacre. Uh, and so one population that warnings that Robert Love's warnings catches are the basically the women and children who are following those troops. Some of those troops have been stationed um, just before they arrived in Boston in Ireland, and uh, as will happen, some of those soldiers had married um, Irish women or women you know, who lived in Ireland, and, and those women had chosen to come with the soldiers, not necessarily on their same transport ships, but on others, um, uh, and so there, there's always a population of, we might say, dependents following um, the British Army. Uh, and so when when the British troops uh, start to leave Boston uh, after the Boston Massacre, middle of 1770, uh, sometimes these, these women and children are left behind by the troops. They, they don't find a passage, a way to get out. And Love finds them in pretty indigent circumstances. And so we find them described in his warnings. Um, and, and otherwise we wouldn't, ca- if we didn't have Robert Love's warnings, we really wouldn't capture um, the circumstances of these women and who they are uh, because he names them. He says uh, so-and-so was married to a grenadier in the 64th Regiment. Uh, so that's very useful information. Uh, and the other population of soldiers uh, captured in his warnings uh, occurs in 1765 to roughly 68, and those are demobilized British soldiers who served uh, in the Seven Years' War that, that ended um, in the early 1760s. Uh, and uh, I, I, we certainly learned, uh, Sharon and I, quite a lot about the history of the Army. They didn't have, uh, if they're term was up, they didn't have a way of getting back to, um, most of them were from England or Scotland or Ireland. Uh, And so we see soldiers sort of trooping through um, the major cities, the major ports, trying to get a passage home. uh, And that's what they often tell Robert Love is, I want to get a passage home. Uh, And sometimes the um, province poor account in Massachusetts pays for that, um, uh, but but it's difficult for them. So that's another slice of um, that we get of, of soldiers, demobilized soldiers. You really did get a very rich picture there. And um, the other group that I thought was fascinating to read about and about whom I haven't read very much, in fact, probably the last time I really thought about them in depth uh, was in uh, – you know, graduate school, and that's the Acadians. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, the movement of the Acadians, I think, into the Atlantic states is not very, or into the Atlantic colonies is not very well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. in your book, they feature pretty prominently. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think the most recent uh, book, if people are looking for a good one, about uh, the very dramatic story and a uh, very sad story of uh, uh, accomplished Acadian French French settlers in Nova Scotia being um, ousted from their their land there in 1755 by the British uh, is John Farragher's book. I think it's called A Great uh, here it is, a great and noble scheme. Um, he tells the story very well. Where we sort of add a small piece to it is that um, the Acadian families who were expelled uh, forcibly by the British Army in 1755 from Nova Scotia were, in essence, interned um, for the next 10 years in various British colonies along the along the coast. And Massachusetts, I think, took the largest number, something like a thousand. So uh, they, these families were forced to live uh, in a Protestant land when they were Catholic. Uh, they, they had a hard time making a living. Um, and there's a particular moment, 1766, when they're finally allowed by the governor of Massachusetts to leave. The war has been over for several years, but they still have been required to stay. And now they're allowed to leave and go back to French communities, unfortunately not to the parts of the fertile parts of Nova Scotia where they have been, which are now taken over by um, English settlers, um, but to other French communities along the Gaspé and in um, what we know as Quebec. So uh, what's fascinating about Love's Warnings is that he he comes upon something like eight very large Acadian families uh, staying in one particular tavern and renting, renting a house, sharing a house on Boston Neck, uh, which is the spit of land that led to, to Roxbury. Uh, and, and they have come in from places like Arlton, Massachusetts, interior towns where they were forced to live um, for the last few years. And, and there we see a process here of family re- reunification. Some of those Acadian families have been split up with teenage boys having to live separately from their parents. So now they're coming together again. Uh, and they are sort of like the soldiers looking for passage, looking for a way to get to their French communities in the north. Some of them end up uh, walking, I think, trekking there, and others manage to uh, to get ship's passage. Now, besides talking about these different groups, the sojourners, the soldiers, and the Acadians, the other certainly interesting party here is Robert Love himself and mm-hmm. sort of how he comes to do this job. You talked about it a little bit, but this is a man, as you say, he's not schooled in law, but he has to keep all these books. He keeps uh, not only his log, but several copies uh, of different things to um, spell out some of the stories. So he has his logbook entries, then he has his warrants, and then he has these other pages that he delivers. Um, what it, what did you notice about Robert Love as someone carrying out his legal duties um, in Boston? How does he change over time? Um, can you tell us a little bit about him personally. Sure. Uh, 
the 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 puzzle that that we had to sort of solve was that he was appointed at age sixty eight to this position, which which really is unusual in that most uh, Bostonians who served in town offices like fence viewers or you know um, all sorts of town offices that men were um, drafted into serving, they they're usually in their thirties or forties, or they're or they're fairly young men. And so, question would be, why would love be sixty eight? That's that's fairly old. Very um, old. And it turns, yeah, it turned out his predecessors tended to be in their 50s and 60s too. So there's something about this position of finding and warning strangers that where age helped. <laughs> and we think it's that, um, that love had a particular uh, capacity for m- memorizing faces and sort of like a Facebook of Bostonians <laughs> town was in about 16,000 people. So, you know, it's, it would be an exaggeration to say he knew all of them, but clearly he must have been adept at uh, walking the streets and differentiating between people who he was familiar with and, and newcomers. And we also um, can show that he, you know, he used uh, Boston residents like landlords and tavern keepers and as informants. So, but so that's fascinating that he's older. Um, uh, and he had, but he, he had no that, background. That was, yeah. Sorry, he had no background in mm-hmm. law enforcement or. Any training? No, right. He had no, held no town office before this, which seemed odd too. Uh, he'd been a tailor in his young, you know, in his youth, and and then he just was a trader. So yeah, no, no other town offices. Yeah, very unusual. Right. So and then so then the next question was his biography. Who is this person who who took excellent notes? Um, and uh, it turns out that uh, he's a, he would be very obscure Bostonian if not for his warning records. Um, he wasn't born in Boston. He has a pretty interesting background. He was born in County Antrim and Ulster in Northern Ireland. Um, he probably was of Scottish heritage, and so so many of the settlers there were Scots. Um, he came over in the 1718 to 1720 to New England when when many um, Ulster Scots came and settled often places like Londonderry and New Hampshire and parts of Maine. Um, he uh, he early on his brother came too. His brother married very well in Boston and was more prominent. Um, uh, so love, uh, um, like many people, uh, he and he married uh, around seven in the 1720s. Uh, Rachel Blair, who had come similarly from um, Ulster in the in the few years before, and it's possible she was warned as a as a young child coming in with her parents. It's possible Robert Love was warned in Boston early in his life, but we we haven't found the records for that. Um, but when he did become a Bostonian and brought up, uh, he and Rachel, his wife, five children, uh, all of whom survived to adulthood, um, he he was a modest townsman. He rented his lodgings. Uh, he didn't own them, but then probably about two-thirds of Bostonians rented, so it's not that unusual. Um, he had these various trades, uh, as I've said before. He didn't um, own much when when he died though he he owned a mahogany desk so we uh, imagine that that's where he took his notes and kept his records so he owned two other desks which is quite unusual for someone who's un, not learned um 
he owned a blue coat. Uh, so we imagine him walking the streets of Boston <laughs> in his blue coat and his tri-cornered hat <laughs> and his wig. <laughs> um, uh, so there are, there are some, we were able to trace him in litigation and um, probate records and he, uh, other things, but he, he was not uh, at all of the elite. Uh, and uh, the, we make the argument that he's more like many of the people he warned than um, his predecessors in this job who had been uh, sometimes deacons of the church, who had owned fine houses, who, who had been well-connected. Does, he seems very familiar, though, with kind of legal terms and... Um, just with the law mm -hmm. generally, mm -hmm. do you think that's mm -hmm. common for a, a guy like him? Do, mm -hmm. do a lot of Bostonians mm -hmm. have a familiarity with legal terms, mm -hmm. legal procedures? Hmm. Well, another way that we imagine him kind of moving through the landscape is that he often goes to the selectman's office, which is on the second floor of Santa Hall, and because he has to turn in, not only does he write uh, his uh, notes about the people warned in his logbook, but then he copies them out word for word onto warrants, which is the other thing that really makes the <laughs> warning a legal gesture, is, is there the names and the, and the descriptions of the people warned, he copies onto warrants, which he receives from the town clerk, and then he must deliver to the, um, the county court. Uh, and so we imagine him often in that uh, selectman's office, the town where the town clerk had his office. The town clerk, Samuel Cooper, was a very well-educated uh, person with beautiful handwriting, unlike Robert Louse, which is <laughs> very pretty rough and phonetic in spelling. Um, and so... You know, I do. Th I think of him as someone of the lower middling sort who, but who has to spend time with. He attends selectman meetings often. We deduce, um, so he's sort of hanging out. We might say he's on the edges of um, the uh, well-educated, uh, more prosperous uh, town officials who run the town. Um, uh, so he's kind I, of absorbing. Know, I felt, yeah, I felt from my other work that most. Most property men uh, in this society and a lot of women and um, young people learn quite a lot about the law by, um, you know, attending court sessions and having to manage family property. So I think he fits into that. There are a couple of times when he sued an attorney, I think, sues him for um, payment. He sues other people. So he's comfortable with the workings of the law. Now, did any of his children uh, sort of follow in his footsteps and become uh, part of the legal terrain, or do they just go off well, and become... not that we know of. I mean, I think what we were trying to figure out was what, were, what was Robert Love's politics. Mm -hmm. uh, w one of the questions we asked ourselves is, was he kind of a royalist? Because uh, in every entry he writes, uh, when he warns someone, he adds at the very end the words that he spoke, which is, I warn you in his majesty's name to depart the town of Boston in 14 days. So having rewritten over and over again in his majesty's name, we thought, well, maybe <laughs> Maybe he's really attached to the king, and he imagines himself as, right. He's the agent of the king. It turns out that that phrase in His Majesty's name is is used in quite a lot of legal 
documents and by by petty officials. Um, and so I don't think it was that unusual. But it raised the question for us, you know, would he, if he had lived beyond 1774, would Robert Love have been a loyalist? Um, and I think there's some hints uh, that we found that he would not have been. Uh, and one is his five children. None of them became loyalists. Uh, most of them left uh, Boston temporarily when Boston was um, taken taken over a second time by the British in 1775, and then they returned to it. Um, uh, so they, they didn't become loyalists. Um, and then an- another hint arose in that Love warned um, a couple of the principals um, in the Boston Massacre, like Patrick Carr, uh, one of the uh, soldiers um, who's later tried for um, shooting into the crowd, uh, supposedly. And um, at some point, and then and Ed, Edward Montgomery is another one. Um, and at some point after the Boston Massacre, Love said, writes in his logbook um, uh, some phrase like, uh, that he was the man who murdered our people. And, <laughs> um, so using our people shows that he is on the side of the, what we call the patriots, um, that he's outraged at uh, what happened um, uh, in the Sprakus. Um So, so we deduce that he he sort of became he became a loyal Bostonian, and he would have sided with the patriot side, the independence side of things. And um, so that's our take on politics. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's fascinating how you can how you found out so much about the whole family. I think and and mm-hmm. his children, as you say, he had five children. Um, the story the story that you have here really does weave together his kind of personal life and these interactions that he has um, as a warner. And you get a lot of other people's um, personal stories. It must have been a lot of fun to write this book. <laughs> well, I'm glad it sounds that way. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, it, it, it was. Uh, and some of it was that hunt for who is Robert Love, because when we gave papers about our research early in the process, people in the audience were fascinated by that. Um, and they really were interested also in the encounter that he had walking the streets and um, sometimes we get a sense of this. We get a sense when he's nervous about someone, he changes the formula, a formulaic way in which he writes the warning. Um, He will sometimes describe people in interesting ways. Like uh, I have some quotes here, a very drinking man, uh, (laughs) you know, a very old man, very poor and very cross, wouldn't tell me where he lodged, etc. So people sometimes, although I think most of the strangers he encountered were quite talkative with him and uh, told told him where they were last from, what town they had last lived in, which is part of his obligation to ask, when they had come to town, uh, sometimes uh, an occupation, uh, where they were lodging. So some most people were forthcoming, we feel, uh, and uh, trusted love, uh, but others were resistant uh, and refused to tell him, and he, he clearly got annoyed and kind of upset about that. <laughs> Um, so, so, but some interesting stories arise, and you know, some of them are tragic. Uh, uh, there are uh, people who are um, 
who, who, who can't afford to lodge anywhere, uh, and they lodge in the streets or in the barn, so we see kind of an 18th century version of homelessness. Uh, there are other people who are um, really afflicted with uh, psychosis or hallucinations, mental illness, and he describes just a few people as hollering in the streets and being followed by the boys. Um, but then there's there's some that aren't so tragic and that are amusing. I think our favorite story is a young man who calls himself Nicholas Hebier, who says he was born in the German lands, but then he makes the mistake of telling Love that he had been last three years in France, in Paris, from which place he says he came by land <laughs> to Boston. <laughs> so maybe not that young man who didn't know his geography and making up a story about himself. And uh, in the next line, uh, Robert Love wrote, I take him to be a runaway servant, you know, from somewhere nearby. So, so there were some strangers who tried to, you know, pull uh, Love's leg, and um, and he often will he will unmask people who have an alias. He'll say, "Well, you're calling yourself Nancy White this year, but last year I warned you, and you were Nancy Dasson, and I have you in my books." <laughs> so um, there's some very interesting descriptions. You're right of. Uh, of individuals that he encounters, uh, and what we would, what we are hoping to do is work with the New England Historic Genealogical Society to put Love's warnings um, up on an, on their wonderful database, of, uh, online database um, of searchable, where you can search by a word, a keyword, or by uh, a name. Uh, because these are uh, really social history documents that are very valuable to genealogists. If you can search them by name, you may be able to find something about uh, past family members that wouldn't turn up in any other record, like tra- really travels uh, through Boston, um, et cetera. So, so we are hoping that these will eventually be available to people to search. The the incredible thing about this is, as you say, you found it, you and Sharon found it as a diary, listed as a diary. Mm-hmm. So this was not in any kind of official mm-hmm. legal papers. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, is this the kind of thing where we might now expect more of these books to start turning up as historians start <laughs> looking in private papers? Or, right. Uh, right. Well, or do you think this is pretty maybe. singular? Right. I mean, in terms of love logbooks, just the one logbook survives that we know of, um, and we thought the rest were lost. But as we did our research, uh, we found out that he made these copies, right? So we were able to reconstruct all nine, almost all nine years of his warnings by finding the warrants uh, in the court record papers and the copies he made for the overseers of the poor in in the Boston Public Library uh, records. So, so we found copies and were able to reconstruct. But, uh, uh, you know, and we assume that the logbook he kept uh, was not official. It was, it was sort of his notes, right? His exactly. record. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, that he would then copy over for the official parts. Um, but yes, I think, uh, and the MHS has now relabeled it to call it Robert Love's logbook and described it. But it, but it does show researchers, um, and there are many other examples of this, that it, it, it really pays 
to sort of open things up, right, uh, and look at them, and they may not be what what they're labeled, and you may, you know, you may stumble upon a treasure. <laughs> uh, and I think that's that that's what happened for us. We we were fascinated by a warning, and we we figured that his records gave us a, a, a special way into analyzing it. Well, Nina, I want to thank you for this interview. Um, believe it or not, our time is almost up. I want to encourage people to read Robert Love's Warnings, Searching for Strangers in Colonial Boston by Cornelia Hughes-Dayton and Sharon V. Salinger. It's put out by the University of Pennsylvania Press, came out this year. Um, it's a great work of comparative legal history, social history, cultural history, and I think if you're interested in the Atlantic world or um, just in Boston itself, you can get a lot out of it. I want to thank you for spending time with us today. Well, I enjoyed it very much, Kathy, and both Sharon and I thank you. So very nice to talk to you, and um, I hope that uh, this book will become, you know, a history bestseller. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we'll see. We enjoyed doing it. That, that's certainly the case. Okay. Thank you very much, Nina. Take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.